by Princess Leia has set up a new base on the ice planet of Hoth. The Imperial fleet led by Darth Vader continues to hunt for the new rebel base by dispatching, dispatching probe droids across the galaxy. Luke Skywalker is captured by a wampa while investigating one such probe, but manages to escape from the wampa's lair with his lightsaber. Before Luke uh, succumbs to, hey, I like the, the uh, sound effects, keep those up. Before Luke succumbs to um, hyperthermic sleep, the force ghost of his late mentor, Obi-Wan Kenobi, instructs him to go to Dagobah to train under Jedi Master Yoda. Anybody want to do a Yoda impersonation? Nobody? Very good it is. Okay. Han Solo locates Luke and cuts open a tauntaun and he rode in there to keep his friend warm. They wait there until being rescued by a search party the next morning. Meanwhile, the probe alerts the Imperial fleet of the rebels' location. The Empire launches a large-scale attack using AT-AT walkers to capture the base, which forces the rebels to retreat. Han and Leia escape with C-3PO and Chewbacca on the Millennium Falcon, but the ship's hyperdrive malfunctions. They hide in an asteroid field where Han and Leia glow closer amidst tension and briefly kiss. I'm glad the kids are gone. Vader summons bounty hunters to assist finding the Falcon. Luke, meanwhile, escapes with R2-D2 in his X-Wing fighter and crash lands on the swamp planet of Dagobah. He meets a uh, diminu uh, excuse me, diminutive creature who reveals himself to be Yoda. After conferring with Obi-Wan's spirit, Yoda reluctantly accepts Luke as his student. After evading the Imperial fleet, Han's group travels to a floating city, a cloud city, uh, on the gas planet of Bespin, which is run by Han's old friend Lando. Unbeknowings to the group, the bounty hunter Boba Fett has tracked the Falcon. Shortly after their arrival, Lando hands the group over to Darth Vader. Vader plans to use the group as bait to lure out Luke, intending to capture him and take him to the Emperor Palpatine. Luke experiences a premonition uh, of Han and Leia in pain and, against the wishes of Yoda and uh, Obi-Wan, abandons his training to rescue them, promising to return and complete his training. Intending to hold Luke in suspended animation via carb carbon freezing, Vader selects Han to be frozen as a test subject. Han survives the process and is given to Fett, who plans to collect the bounty on Han from Jabba the Hutt. Lando frees Leia and Chewbacca, but they are too late to stop Fett from departing with Han. They fight their way back to the Falcon and flee the city. Meanwhile, Luke arrives and engages Vader in a lightsaber duel that leads them over the city's central air shaft. Vader severs Luke's right hand, disarming him and tempts him to come over to the dark side of the force. Luke accuses Vader of murdering his father, and then, to the shock of every person seated in the theaters across America and around the world on May 17th of 1980, Darth Vader makes this statement, a statement deemed by many to be one of the greatest quotes in cinema history. No, I am your father. How many of you know what I'm talking about? Star Wars. How many of you, I don't know, I'm just curious. Who was there back in 1980 and actually was in theaters and was able to watch it? Wow, really? We're, you're, we're, in, we're, in, the, we're in the presence of celebrities. You've got to watch that. How many of you are avid Star Wars fans? You know, we actually misquote that. I read this a little bit this week. We actually misquote. We, we often say, Luke, I am your father. That's not what he said. He said, no, I am your father. And so, anyways, this is deemed as one of the greatest quotes in cinema history. No doubt most of us, who, how many of you don't like Star Wars? 
I feel like Star Wars, it's like the Yankees and the Cowboys. Either you are an avid fan or you despise and you hate them. There is no in-between. But nonetheless, we like, I, I think most of us would agree, we like the movie Star Wars. I married into the Farinella family, and the Farinella family is a bunch of nerds and geeks, and they are extremely passionate about their love for Star Wars. My wife has several t-shirts. Matter of fact, I didn't realize uh, what I was getting myself into until I married her and realized she's one of those fans, the ones who can almost quote every single line and has all the paraphernalia and so forth. And so uh, we all like Star Wars. We, we, like, we like the shock factor, don't we? We like the wow factor. That's why we, we like TV and movie shows and so forth or drama. We like to be wowed. We like for things to, um, uh, the least expected scenario, we like to play out whether we want to admit it or not. And uh, so is the case. Again, this was a very controversial uh, plot twist in the Star Wars uh, trilogy, or rather the Star Wars story. Some people had mixed emotions about it, but uh, if I understand correctly, it wasn't intended to be this way. Uh, it was a last-minute substitution um, by George Lucas that he put in there that was not a part of the original storyline. And so nonetheless, he put it in there, and he was probably, that was the best decision that he ever made because it really made the rest of the series. Now, Luke is fighting in a very serious sense against his father, and um, I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings, but you do know it's fake, right? It's fake. I, it's, I know, you're not going to believe it, but Star Wars is not real. I know, I'm, I, right now I can see some of you have just been offended because your life revolves around the Star Wars trilogy. You can't wait for the next one to come out and the prequels and the sequels and all those things, but it's, it's a movie. It's fake. It's drama. And I don't want to over-spiritualize things, but I'm going to over-spiritualize something. When we read the word of God, did you know that it's real? It's, it's real. I mean, it, it's, it's something that happened. It took place. Uh, the stories that we read about in Scripture are not narratives. They're not stories. They're not fictional. They're not the things that re are recorded in Scripture. Someone did ju not just place in there uh, to change the storyline. Uh, it actually occurred this way. And I, I think if we were nearly as excited and as animated when we read the Word of God as we were when we watched TV, we would find that it's fascinating to see some of these stories unfold, particularly, uh, particularly the story of Joseph. And the, 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 the story that we've gone through all the way up until this point has been this. Joseph has experienced some very difficult trials and circumstances. He's been through some hard times. And the reason that he's in the position, yes, it is because of God, but it's also because of the betrayalment of his brothers in Genesis chapter number 37. And as I'm reading and I'm studying this week, it wasn't until yesterday that I thought, Joseph and Darth Vader have something in common. They both make the statement that totally transforms the story and changes the outlook of those who are on looking. The only difference is what took place in the life of Darth Vader is very much fake, but this is actually a real story. And so let's read in Genesis chapter number 45 and verse number one. Can you read with me the same kind of excitement that you would read? Can you get into it the same kind of uh, zeal and passion that you'd get into your favorite TV show or something like that? And think about it. Put yourself in the position of Joseph's brothers at this point in our text. I want you to see in verse number one. We'll read down through verse number 15 and we'll cover the rest of the chapter as we go on throughout the lesson tonight. Verse number one. Then Joseph could not refrain himself before all them that stood by him. I need to say this. So last week we talked about this, but Joseph has put his brothers through a series of vigorous tests and uh, different kinds of circumstances. He wanted to remember, he wanted to see if they were not just regretful, but they were repentant. He wanted to see that change had taken place. And so we left off last week talking about this one final test that Joseph put his brothers through. And it was this, that he took the chalice, remember the silver chalice, and he put it in Benjamin's sack, sent them on their way, and then he sent 
sends his steward to go and confront them, and then they bring them back, and now the brothers are very scared, they're afraid, they don't know who Joseph is, but they come before uh, Joseph nonetheless, and then Judah steps forth, and he begins pleading his case, and Judah begins to explain, remember, he says all the things that this Egyptian ruler had told them before, and then he also tells them of the condition of his father, and how if we don't bring Benjamin back with us, this is surely going to bring down the gray hairs of our father to the grave, it's going to kill him. And so we pick up in verse number one again. Then Joseph could not refrain himself before all, that, uh, all them that stood by him. And he cried, cause every man to go out from me. And, uh, uh, and there stood no man with him while Joseph made himself known unto his brethren. And he wept aloud. And the Egyptians and the house of Pharaoh heard. And Joseph said unto his brethren, I am Joseph. Doth my father yet live? And his brethren could not answer him, for they were troubled at his presence. And Joseph said unto his brethren, Come near to me, I pray you. And they came near, and he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. Now therefore be not grieved nor angry with yourselves, that ye sold me hither, for God did send me before you to preserve life. For these two years have the fam- uh, excuse me. For these two years hath the famine been in the land, and there are yet five years in that which there shall neither be earing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve you a posterity in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So now it was not you that sent me hither, but God. And He hath made me a father of Pharaoh and a lord over his house and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. Haste ye, and go up to my father, and say unto him, Thus saith thy son Joseph, God hath made me lord over all Egypt. Come down unto me, tarry not. And thou shalt dwell in the land of Goshen, and thou shalt be near unto me, thou and thy children, and thy children's children, and thy flocks, and thy herds, and all that thou hast. And there will I nourish thee. For yet there are five years of famine, lest thou and thy household and all that thou hast come to poverty. And behold, your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin, that it is my mouth that speaketh unto you. And ye shall tell my father of all my glory in Egypt, and of all that ye have seen, and ye shall haste and bring down my father hither. And he fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. Look at verse 15. Moreover, he kissed who? all his brethren, and wept upon them. And after that, his brethren talked with him. Plot twist. Completely transforms the rest of the story. This is not what we had anticipated, and I understand that we know the story of Joseph, but if you are reading fresh and knew the story of Joseph tonight, and you realize that he reveals himself unto his brothers, and then it closes by saying that he weeps with them, and fellowships with them, and communes with them, and begins to talk with them, quite the plot twist. Not exactly what we expected to happen, not what we thought maybe should happen, but nonetheless, this is a real event, and this is how Joseph responds to his brothers. For just a moment tonight, in light of our series of the life of Joseph and uh, Genesis chapter number 45, I'd simply like to talk to you about this, this statement, I am Joseph. 
I am Joseph. Let's pray for a minute and we'll begin. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day, for your many blessings and allowing us the opportunity to come into your house tonight, Lord. Although there are few of us, we are thankful for your safety that you've given to us, those who are able to make it. And for those that weren't able to make it, Lord, I pray that you'd be with them. Uh, and Lord, you just keep, uh, keep us all safe, all of the members of Wooden Valley Baptist Church, that you'd keep us safe with this storm that's coming. Just have your will with that situation, Lord. But uh, Lord, if it be your will, hold back the snow and I pray that it would, uh, it would promote healthy driving conditions so we could all make it back to your house safely on Sunday, on Saturday for visitation, and then on Sunday for service. Lord, but if not, I pray that you would uh, just uh, build a hedge of protection around us in this weather, that you'd uh, just protect all the members of Wooden Valley Baptist Church as we go about, and uh, school and so forth, Lord, that you just have your will and way in that situation. Lord, I do pray with tonight, the missionaries that we mentioned, Lord, the requests that were mentioned, everything that we do tonight, uh, Lord, I think of the teens and Brother David as he preaches to the teens, that you'd give him power as he preaches to them. He'll be in the same passage that I'm in tonight, Lord. Give him power, give him wisdom for Brother David over with the young kids, that he'd be uh, a blessing to them and to teach them the word of God, Lord, just all over the campus, that we'd be found in your glory, Lord, giving you glory, honor, and praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for reading with me. <clears throat> For over 25 years, Joseph and his brothers have lived totally different lives and walked completely different paths. Unbeknownst to them, they were both moving in the same direction and towards the same goals, but their paths never converged. And for the past several weeks, we've talked about how the providential hand of God, the sovereign hand of God, has been working both in the life of Joseph as well as in the life of Joseph's brothers to bring them to the point where they would once again, it's been 25 years, but eventually he wants them to be a fellowshipped family once again. That was the agenda and that was the goal. He wanted them to come forth and, and for their paths to converge and for them to be a family unit once again, to have unity in the family, in the house of Jacob. But before that could happen, Joseph needed to ensure that true repentance had taken place in the lives of his brothers. Therefore, he puts them through the series of tests that would allow Joseph to examine the heart condition of his ten brothers and see firsthand, again, if they had truly changed. He wanted to make sure that they did not just feel regretful for their actions, but they had a true heart of repentance, that the callousness of their hearts was removed, and that repentance had truly taken place. Remember, they, they had to come to the end of themselves. Talked about that just a few weeks ago. They needed to come to the end of themselves in order to continue on the path that God had set before them. But they finally came to this place where they were not just regretful. Aren't you thankful? They were not just regretful. At first, they were regretful for what their sin had cost them and the ramifications of their sin. They were found in prison. They were found in this famine and all sorts of different things. They found themselves in a difficult position. But now, they're actually feeling not just sorry for what their sin has cost them, but now they're feeling sorry, they're regretful, and they're repentant because of what their sin had cost those around them. And that came forth really through how they responded to the accusations brought against their younger brother, Benjamin, and how how they had compassion for Benjamin and how Judah steps up and he says, hey, listen, take my life instead. Don't punish this boy. He's not the one who performed these actions. Hey, take my life instead. Very different than their response in Genesis 37 when it came to Joseph. And so repentance had truly taken place. But remember, throughout this entire process, Joseph played the part of the Egyptian ruler and the 11 brothers up until this point, they had no idea that this Egyptian ruler that stood before them was in fact their brother, Joseph, whom they maliciously threw into a pit and sold into slavery in Genesis 37, and he's very much alive. And here's the plot twist. Here's the plot twist. Here's the big reveal. Joseph, finally, the Bible says in the very beginning of our text, he can't take it anymore. He's overwhelmed with emotion, and he reveals himself, and he says unto his brothers, hey, I am Joseph. 
I am Joseph, I am Joseph, he says, thy brother, in verse number four, whom you sold to Egypt. Again, two times in verse number three and verse number four, he says to them, I am Joseph. And he makes this reveal. It is at this point in this chapter that these two paths, Joseph's brother's path and Joseph's path, is now going to converge. Now it's going to come into the same path, and now they're going to be headed the same direction, and God is going to use Joseph. He's gonna use Joseph, and he's gonna be very influential in his brother's lives, but also going forth in the Old Testament, we're gonna find that God is now able to use Joseph's 11 other brothers in the way that he wants them to live, and the way that he wants to lead them, and now they're on the same path in a family unit, unified and progressing in the direction that God wants them to go. So very quickly tonight, a few things I'd like us to, to notice about that phrase, I am Joseph, and the reveal that Joseph makes to his brothers in Genesis chapter number 45. I don't think we'll have notes on the screen. Uh, Brother Jake is down. I don't know if Brother Alex has those notes, but number one, if you're taking notes, I want you to notice the startling revelation. The startling revelation. Can you imagine being one of the 11 brothers in Genesis chapter number 45 when you hear those words, I am Joseph? Can you put yourself in their position and, and, and put yourself in their position when you hear those words, I am Joseph. Joseph reveals himself as being the brother whom they sold into slavery, uh, threw into a pit and sold into slavery. Now we, we learned because of his position before they even knew who he was, this Egyptian ruler they had a lot of respect and reverence for simply because he's worthy of respect because of his position. They had no idea that it was Joseph, but the Bible says many times in our text, even before our text, we talked about this a few weeks ago, that they kept saying, I am very fearful, I am afraid. They were very intimidated by this man that stood before him, simply because this was the ruler, second in command in all of Egypt. He was a very high prestige, in a, in a high pres, uh, prestigious position in regards to his authority. They were fearful simply because of who he was, not because of who they realized he was personally. You understand what I'm trying to say? But this fear, again, had everything to do with what he could do and not because of who he was. They had no idea that this was Joseph up until this point. But now they realize that this man of esteem and power that stood before them was, in fact, the 17-year-old little boy that 25 years older they maliciously threw into a pit. The Bible says that is without water maliciously threw him to a pit and then they realized he was more of value to them alive and so they pull him out of the, the pit and to the recommendation of, of Judah they sell him to the Midianites into slavery. That Joseph is now standing before them. They counted him as dead. Whenever they performed these malicious acts in Genesis chapter number 37, they counted him as dead. Surely there's no way that a Hebrew is gonna make it that long there in the land of Egypt. They were not respected. They were not, uh, uh, they were not uh, viewed upon uh, uh, with respect and with, uh, with uh, the kind of human uh, uh, passion and compassion that you would have. They treated the Hebrews very poorly in the land of Egypt. And so surely they think Joseph is dead. 25 years later, through this series, the last three chapters we've looked at, through this series of unfortunate circumstances, now the man that's stands before them that had spoken harshly to them in just a few verses earlier, that's Joseph. That's Joseph, he reveals. It's no wonder that it says in verse number four, it says his brothers could not answer him for they were troubled at his presence. They could not believe that the man that stood before them, wait a second, that's him, that's, that's Joseph? They were dumbfounded. They were speechless. They couldn't give him an answer because they were troubled at his presence. The man whom they had mistreated so much in their childhood is now standing before them very much alive. It's a lot to process. It's a lot to process. Again, they already had felt regretful. They had felt the, the pain and the agony and the weight for 25 years that was weighing heavily upon their shoulders. 
That's a lot to process, and, and uh, we read it really quickly, but it, it happened in the span of maybe 10 seconds where he hears the words, they hear the words, I am Joseph. They begin to analyze. A few things I want you to notice of this revelation. Letter A, it was a personal revelation. Verse number one, it was a personal revelation. Then Joseph could not refrain himself before all them that stood by him, and he cried, caused every man to go out from me, and there stood no man with him, while Joseph made himself known unto his brethren. Joseph didn't make this great statement before a multitude of people and acquaintances. No, he says, I want everybody out except for my brothers. And he makes this revelation very personally and very specifically to them. Now, could you put yourself in the position of his brothers? Um, If I'm Joseph's brothers, that's going to intimidate me all the more. He's clear in house. He doesn't want anybody to be able to see what he's about to do to us. And so he says, everybody depart except for me and my brothers. But he gets personal with them. He wants nobody in the room. He wants their full, undivided attention. It was a personal revelation. Letter B, it was a painful revelation. Verse number one, then Joseph could not refrain himself before all them that stood by him. We've learned up until this point that Joseph is a very emotional person when it comes to the subject. Two times we looked in just a few weeks ago that Joseph was crying because of the callousness of his brother's heart and then he's crying again because of the recollection that Joseph, or not Joseph, but Benjamin is alive and he sees the, the progression in his brothers moving in the right direction. Joseph is very moved with emotion when it comes to this situation, very sensitive about this situation and then again it begins in our, in our passage in Genesis chapter number 45, he can't contain himself. He's moved again with emotion, Why? Because although he knew that God was in control, it still hurt. He knew, I mean, he never discredited God from being in control. He knew that God was a sovereign God and that he was in control of his circumstance. But that doesn't change the pain. That doesn't change the heartache. That doesn't change the fact that he was maliciously taken from his family, sold to a land very far away from his family. He has not seen his father and his brothers for the last 25 years. The pain is still there. It's still going to hurt a little bit. Verse number three. And Joseph said unto his brethren, I am Joseph, doth not my father yet live? And again, his brethren could not answer him, for they were troubled at his presence. Man, it hurt Joseph, but it also hurt his brothers. It was a very painful thing for them to connect the dots and realize that the man that stood before him is the brother whom they maliciously sold into slavery four chapters before, 25 years before. Again, the malicious actions of his brothers were deemable of some of the most hateful. The Bible says, again, they hated him, they hated him more, they hated him yet the more. They despised Joseph because he was favored amongst the brethren. And now he's standing before them. This is a very painful thing. They counted him as dead. I I believe this. I believe that when they saw Joseph, the only thing worse than Joseph dying as a result of their callousness is Joseph living. Because if Joseph is dead, at least he's dead. But now... They see Joseph standing before them. Can you put yourself in their, in the, in their state of mind? He's lived. He lived through the, the stuff that we put him through, and now he's in Egypt. It was a painful experience for them to go through. And these same brothers, excuse me, this same brother that they had betrayed was sitting in front of them, very much alive. And as they begin the process of the, uh, processing the information, Joseph can tell that they're having trouble analyzing the things. And he says in verse number four, he says, and Joseph said unto his brethren, come near. Come near to me, I pray you. And they came near and he said, I am Joseph, but then he says, your brother, whom ye sold into Egypt. As if there was any kind of doubt, as if there was any kind of, again, they're analyzing, this is a lot to take in, this is a lot to process. If you have any uh, reservations, Joseph connects the dots by saying something they haven't confessed yet. He says, hey guys, it's me, it's Joseph, 
your brother, the one you sold into slavery. This revelation was personal. It was painful. Let her see. It was a powerful revelation. It was a powerful revelation. The words that you will find in Genesis 45, verse 5 through 7, are some of the most powerful experiences, the most powerful words you'll ever see recorded in the Old Testament. What does Joseph say? Well, number one, he says, you sold me. He said, you sold me. Look at verse number five. Now, therefore, be not grieved, nor angry with yourselves that you sold me hither. In the prime of my life, as a 17-year-old boy, I wasn't even a man yet, you sold me to the Egyptians. You sold me to the Midianites. Your hatred ran so deep within your veins that you took me, your own flesh, your own blood, your brother, you maliciously threw me into a pit, you sold me into slavery, forever separating me from my father and from my family. Then you realize that I was more valuable to you, alive than dead, so you sold me to the Midianites, and again, he sells them into slavery. You sold me. That was wicked. You sold me, but number two, he says, but God sent me. God sent me, in verse number five again. Now therefore be not grieved, nor angry with yourselves that ye sold me hither, for God did send me before you to preserve life. Verse number seven, he says, and God sent me before you to preserve you a prosperity in the earth and to save your lives, I love this, by a great deliverance. So now it was not you that sent me hither, but God. He hath made me a father to Pharaoh and the Lord of his house and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. Talk about a powerful revelation. This, this news was transformative. This news was a big deal. Joseph literally several times in our text is giving glory to God for what God has done in the situation. When you look at the life of Joseph, humanly speaking, I'm, I'm saying humanly speaking, you look at 25 years of wasted potential. You look at 25 years, he's a Hebrew. He's a Hebrew and he was stripped of his, I'm not gonna keep repeating that, but he was stripped of his family and sold into slavery as a slave. Remember all the things that we've gone through over the past 13 weeks, all the difficulty that Joseph has faced, all the things that he's had to endure and had to go through because of them, because of what they had done. But then what does he say? He says, you sold me, but God sent me. He's, he's, he's giving glory to God and he's saying, guys, look at all this that the Lord has done. He doesn't say it yet until Genesis chapter number 50, but in a very real sense, he's saying, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. You sold me, but God sent me. What is he saying? Another way we could say it, God is sovereign. God's been in control this entire time. This evil endeavor that was performed against me, God meant it unto good, and now God's gonna get all the glory. He brought me forth to this position for a great deliverance. This revelation was personal, it was painful, it was powerful, letter D, it was passionate revelation. It was a passionate revelation in verse number 14. And he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept upon his neck. Moreover, he kissed all his brethren and wept upon them, and after that his brethren talked with him. Again, this is not the kind of response that you would expect from Joseph in this position. Joseph has not really been responding how we thought he was going to respond, so I don't know why we're really surprised. But the fact that Joseph would then embrace his, those who had done him harm, he would embrace and he'd begin to kiss and he'd begin to show affection. He'd begin to commune and talk with them. What would lead a victim to embrace his offenders, kiss them and weep upon them and begin communing with them? What would lead Joseph to not only forego the revenge process, but turn around and express the love upon those who had done him so wrong? 
Again, these brothers, the reason that Joseph is in this position in Egypt is because of the calloused actions of his brothers in Genesis chapter number 37. It's really, in a very real sense, all their fault. But now he is found forgiving them. Remember Manasseh, and he names his first son Manasseh to forget all the toil of my father's house. He forgives them, but then he, doesn't, he goes a step further. I mean, a lot of times when we forgive, we forgive, but we, okay, I'm not gonna allow you back into my life. No, Joseph says, I forgive you, and then he starts to treat him like nothing had ever happened. Is that starting to sound a little familiar? What would lend someone like Joseph to respond to his brothers who had done him so hard, uh, done harm unto him and done so much wrong unto him? I don't know, maybe the same thing that would lend the Son of God to treat us the same way. When you think of your life and you consider all the things that you've done, every sin that you've performed is an action against your Savior, Jesus Christ. Every sin that you have, you've participated in, it has been a direct assault on Jesus Christ himself. But Jesus responds with love. Jesus responds with grace in the same way that Joseph expresses uh, his love and his affection for his brother. So it is that Jesus Christ did the same for us. He does the same for us. I think of Ephesians chapter number two and verse number one. We know the verse, one of my favorite passages. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sin, wherein in times past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also ye all had our conversation in times past, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desire of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Favorite verse, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, verse number four, but God, who is rich in mercy, here it is, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath he quickened us together with Christ. Then he closes, by grace are you saved. The same kind of response that Joseph administered unto his brothers, the same kind of motive that Joseph had be behind the grace that he would show his brothers and the kindness that he would show his brothers, the affection that he'd show his brothers is the same kind that Jesus Christ shows to us. Two things, love and grace. Love and grace displays love because he loved them. Displayed, displayed grace even though they did not deserve that. We notice the startling revelation. Number two, I want you to write this down. We notice the sweet reunion. The sweet reunion. Look at verse number eight. So now it was not you that sent me hither, but God. And he hath made me a father to Pharaoh and the Lord of his house and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. Haste ye and go up uh, to my father and say unto him, Thus saith thy son Joseph, God hath made me Lord over all Egypt. Come down unto me, tarry not. What is Joseph saying? Well, he's told them that it wasn't them that performed this action against him. It, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. You sold me, but God sent me. He told them who did it, but now he tells them why. Tells them why. God wanted for there to be unity in the house of Israel once again. He wanted for there to be unity. He wanted for Israel, or excuse me, yeah, for Israel and the, 12, the 11 sons to come into fellowship with Joseph and to be a family unit once again. Fellowship was the end goal. A few things of this reunion very quickly. Letter A, he promised peace. Letter A, he promised peace, verse number 10. We'll work through these very quickly. And thou shalt dwell in the land of Goshen. You're going to want to remember that in just a moment. Thou shalt dwell in the land of Goshen, and thou shalt be near unto me, thou and thy children, and thy children's children, and thy flocks, and thy herds, and all that thou hast. What a peaceful time. Promises them peace, but then let her be, he promised them protection. He promises protection in verse number 11. And there will I nourish thee. Where? Goshen. There will I nourish thee, for yet there are five years of famine, lest thou and thy household and all that thou hast come to poverty. Promises them peace, but then he also promises them protection. He says, hey, you're gonna come into my fellowship and I'm gonna protect you from this famine. 
Letter C, he promised provision. I'm not just going to take care of the needs that you have now, but I'm going to provide for the needs that you have in the future. Verse number five. Now therefore be not grieved nor angry with yourselves that ye sold me hither. And then he says, for God did send me before you to preserve life. And then verse seven he says, and God sent me before you to preserve you a prosperity in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. I'm not just going to take care of the needs that you have today. I'm going to provide for the needs that you have in the future. Promise peace, protection, provision, love this, letter D. He promised a place. He promised a place in verse number 10 again. And thou shalt dwell in the land of Goshen. And thou, uh, excuse me, and thou shalt be near unto me. Thou and thy children and thy children's children and thy flocks and thy herds and all that thou hast. And there in the land of Goshen will I nourish thee. We could, say it, we could say it this way. Joseph had been preparing a place. Joseph has prepared this special place. The word Goshen means the best of the land. And then it also says in, in, in verse number 10, he says, so you can be near unto me. So this land is the best of the land, and this land is in the location of where Joseph is. And he has beforehand prepared this place, and he sends them on this mission to go and to grab their father and to come back. Why? He wants them to be where he is, and he wants them to have the best. Joseph is an Old Testament picture of Jesus Christ and I believe that Goshen is an Old Testament picture of a place that we like to call heaven because God has be- gone beforehand to prepare a place for you. It says in John chapter number 14 and verse number two, let not your heart be troubled. Isn't that funny? Let not your heart be troubled. The beginning of our text, they couldn't even respond to Joseph. Why? They were troubled at his presence. John chapter four, 14 and verse number two, it says, let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. Best part. That there where I am, there ye may be also. That where I am, that is Jesus Christ, that is the Father, where I am, there ye may be also. Joseph is telling his brothers that he wants them to be near to where Joseph is. He wants them to be near where Joseph is because this is the best of the land and this is where Joseph is at. So it is that the Son of God is there at the right hand of of the Father preparing a place for us and the best part of the place is that we get to be in the presence of our Savior, Jesus Christ. There is coming a day when no heartache shall come. No more clouds in the sky, no more tears to dim the eye. All is peace forevermore in that happy golden shore. What? What a day, glorious day that will be. Look at the second verse. It says, there'll be no sorrow there. Aren't you thankful for that? No more burdens to bear. No more sickness, no pain, no more parting over there. But then he says the best part. And forever I will be with the one who died for me. What a day, glorious day that will be. Best part of heaven is not the streets of gold. Best part of heaven is not the sights that we're going to behold, not the mansions that we're going to see. Best part of heaven is not even being reunited with those who have gone before The best part of heaven is the opportunity to be with the one who died for us. That's a glorious day. When we get to be in the presence of our Savior, Jesus Christ, the very best heaven, oh man, Joel Osteen wrote a book, says live your best life now. No, my best life is to come. Whenever I depart from this world where there's heartache, where there's pain, where there's sadness, where there's sorrow, and I depart to be in my Savior's presence, that's a glorious day. That's when I will live my best life. And the reason I'll live my best life there is not because of all the things that heaven has to offer, but because I will be at the feet of my Savior, Jesus Christ. We notice the startling revelation. We notice the sweet reunion. Number three, we notice the swift responsibility. Hey, there's, there's, there's no time to get excited about Goshen. 
There's no time to get excited about Goshen. I know that we've had this revelation and we've had this family reunion, but before we get too excited, there's a swift responsibility, number three. Look at verse number nine. First two words. Haste ye and go up to my father and say unto him, thus saith thy son Joseph, God hath made me Lord over all Egypt. Come down unto me, tarry not. Verse number 13, he says, and ye shall go tell my father of all my glory in Egypt and of all that ye have seen, and ye shall haste and bring down my father hither. He gives him this responsibility, and I preached this just a few months ago, five truths to revive worship. We understand that in the life of Jacob, the father of Joseph, Jacob was an avid worshiper of the Lord, but there came a time in Jacob's life where the worshiping ceased, and it's in Genesis 37, whenever he hears the words that his son has been devoured by an evil beast, and they bring that coat of many colors into Jacob. And then they go into the land of, of Egypt, and Joseph makes this revelation, and he sends them back with a message. And I said it, five things that he tells them. Number one, I want you to tell them that I'm alive. Tell them that he lives. Tell them that the brother, excuse me, the son whom he thought was dead is actually alive, and that I am well, and I am here in Egypt. But don't just tell them that. Tell them I, I love. Tell them that I love him. Tell them I love my family. I want to display my love to my family and those whom, whom I've been separated from for so long. I'm alive. I love. Tell them I'm Lord. Don't forget to tell him I'm Lord. Tell him that I am second in command in all of the land of Egypt. I've been given the cloak. Uh, I've been given the cloak of a king. I've been given a chariot. I've been given rings. I've been given a house. I've been given a mansion. I am a king. I am Lord over all of Egypt. That's what he says in our text. Tell him that I am alive. Tell him that I love. Tell him that I'm Lord. And in case there's any doubt that I'm able to make for the provisions of my family, tell him I'm loaded. Tell him I have all the provisions. Tell him that if there's any doubt on their mind that I'm able to uh, provide for the needs of my family. Matter of fact, it says at the end of our text that they go and they tell him, hey, Joseph's alive and he loves, man, he's Lord of Egypt. Uh, Jacob doesn't believe him. But then he goes and he looks out of the window and he sees all the provisions and all the wagons that Joseph had sent with his brothers and he says, I love it, it is enough. It is enough, Joseph is yet alive, I will go and see him before I die. He lives, he's Lord, he, uh, he, he lives, he loves, he's Lord, he's loaded. But he says, most importantly, you need to tell him I'm longing. Tell him that I am longing. Longing for what? Longing to be with him. I desire to have fellowship with my father and my family. I want for them to come back to here, to Goshen, and to be in fellowship with me. And I said it this way when I preached this just a few months ago. This is Joseph's commission. That's Joseph's commission. He lives, he loves, he's Lord, he's loaded, he's longing. That's Joseph's commission that he gives. And it was very important, very important. Before we celebrate, before we get excited about going to Goshen, you need to go and tell my father because he doesn't know about it yet. You need to go and tell my father. That way you can all come into this place called Goshen. That's where I am. That's the most important part. That's where you're going to be in fellowship with me, but it's my best land. We notice the startling revelation. We notice the sweet reunion. We notice the swift responsibility. Now I want you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter number 5. <clears throat> 2 Corinthians chapter number 5. In Genesis 45, we saw the startling revelation. Hey, this is Joseph. I am Joseph, thy brother, the one you sold into slavery. We saw the sweet reunion. Now he promises them peace, promises them protection. He gives them provision. He sets apart a place. Then he gives them this responsibility, this swift responsibility. Hey, you need to be quick about this. You need to be quick. You need to be efficient. It, there's, there's no time to waste. You need to go and you need to tell my father. And lastly tonight, we'll look at it in 2 Corinthians chapter number 5. The Savior's request for reconciliation, number 4. The Savior's request for reconciliation. 
2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17. We know this verse. We know these verses so well, but can we read? Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given uh, to us the ministry of reconciliation. To wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors of Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God, for he hath made him to be sin for us. Look at this, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Paul gives the same commission to the church at Corinth in this passage that Joseph gave in Genesis chapter number 45. He gives the same admonishment, he gives the same commission, the same instructions. Paul tells the church at Corinth that they aren't the same as they used to be before Christ revealed himself unto them. He says, you are a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. You are new in Christ. Therefore, you cannot let the past define your future in Christ. You cannot let what you were before you knew Christ. Christ made the big reveal and he said, I am Jesus. Died on the cross to save you from your sins. That is a transforming truth and now you are a new creature in Christ. Therefore, you are to go forward. And then he says, you are to be ambassadors. You are to be ambassadors. He says it this way. The ministry of reconciliation has been given unto you. You are ambassadors for Christ. Here's that ministry. The ministry of reconciliation to be an ambassador. Here's the message. You need to go tell the world that Jesus lives. You need to tell them that he's alive. You need to tell them something else. You need to tell them that he loves. Tell them that he loves them so much that he sent, uh, that he went and died on the cross to save you from your sins. You need to tell them that he's Lord. They need to understand that this isn't just some man. This is God. This is the Lord. This is the Lord over all. This is the, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You need to tell them that he's loaded. In case there's any, any shadow of a doubt upon the, the, the people of Corinth, you need to tell them that this man that died, he's not like any other normal man because he died, he rose, and he's, uh, he, uh, he died, was buried, he rose again, and he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, the rocks in every mine. He's loaded, he's able to give you the provisions that you need for your future, but you need to tell them that he's longing. You need to tell them that he has a great desire within himself to have fellowship with his children. He desires, he went to go prepare a place for them and he's gonna come and receive them unto himself that where he is, there we may be also. But you know what? They don't know. Therefore, he gives to them this ministry of reconciliation. He says you are ambassadors. This is your commission. You're gonna go and you're gonna tell them the gospel. We'll close with a last minute admonishment that Joseph gives in his brother, excuse me, to his brothers as they depart in Egypt. Go back to Genesis chapter number 45 real quickly. There's this last minute admonishment that Joseph gives to his brothers as they depart and they go tell the good news to the land of Canaan. They go back to Egypt, or excuse me, they go back to Canaan to tell their father that Joseph, he lives, he loves, he's Lord, he's loaded, and he's longing. And the Bible says that they depart, and right before they depart, Joseph tells them something in verse number 24. So he sent his brethren away, and they departed and said unto them, or excuse me, and he said unto them, see that ye fall not out by the way. See that ye fall not out by the way. You know what Joseph is telling them? Don't become distracted from your commission. Don't become distracted from the instructions that I've given you. There's a lot of things that are gonna demand your attention. Maybe you're gonna get along the way and you're gonna feel very inadequate because of the things that you've done. Hey, don't forget, I, I've forgotten about that. Don't be grievous about that. Don't think about that because you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. You sold me, God sent me. Don't worry about your past. Don't become distracted with the things that are in between here and Canaan. Your job is to get to Canaan and to go and tell my father that I'm alive. 
Don't become distracted. Can I tell you simply, church, I know that this is a simple truth, but when it comes to the Great Commission that's found in Matthew, when it comes to the commission that Paul gave to the church at Corinth, we have the same commission. We have been given the ministry of reconciliation. We have been given the ministry of an ambassador for Jesus Christ. See that you fall not by the way. See that you fall not by the way. Don't become distracted with the issues and the different things of life. Your objective is simply this, glorify God and tell others about Jesus. That's the gospel. That's the great commission that was given to the Christian, given to Christ's church, the local church. That's our commission that's been given to us is to go forth into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And the same admonishment that Joseph gave, gave I gave to you tonight. Don't become distracted. See that you fall not out by the way. Don't become distracted from seeing the gospel played out in your life and to share the gospel with every man, woman, boy, and girl that you come into contact with. The changing truth and the pivotal truth that is recorded in our text right here in the very beginning of Genesis chapter number 45, he makes the revelation that he is Joseph. And that transformed the life of the followers of Joseph. That transformed the life of his brothers. You know what would change your perspective when you realize that that's Jesus? That's Jesus that laid down his life. That's Jesus that laid down his life for you and for me. He is Jesus. He's given us the ministry of reconciliation. So if you ever get distracted or you ever find yourself wanting to lean to the right hand or to the left, just remember who he is, remember the cross, and keep pursuing after the gospel. Don't, go, go, don't fall, uh, excuse me, so that you fall not by the way. Don't become distracted. Let's, great way to do that this Saturday. Weather permitting, we've got church-wide community outreach, and so I'd encourage everybody to come out and to be a part of that, to share the gospel. That's our commission. That's what we've been instructed to do by the Lord himself. So let's not get distracted. We'll say a quick word of prayer, and we'll go directly into our prayer time. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day, for your many blessings, and allowing us the opportunity again tonight to come and to worship you, to bring these requests before you. I do pray that you'd be with us tonight. Uh, I pray that we would not become distracted uh, with the things of this life. Uh, Lord, some of the things that we become distracted with seem important. We can become distracted with things like ministry, in family. We can become